Um, the passage today is from Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, page 1006 in the Church Bibles. They went across the lake to the region of Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High, God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came, and came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Good morning, everyone. My name is Joel. I'm the international student worker at Grace Church, Manchester. Last week, we started a new series called The 3D Gospel. Uh, the main aim is to look at the same gospel message, Jesus our righteousness, through the lens of people from different cultures who we meet through church ministry. And ultimately, the aim is to celebrate Christ as the Lord of all nations. All those who worked in cross-cultural evangelism will be fully aware that while the gospel message of God's finished work on the cross remains unchanged, the way we package the gospel message is crucial and should be tailored to the person that we are reaching out to. It is all about starting at where they are at in their faith journey something that they can identify with and align with their worldview. I used this illustration last week, and I'm going to use it again. It's a simple illustration. It's like having a chicken on your lunch menu. The protein or star of the dish is chicken. That remains unchanged. But the way you present your chicken dish matters. If you're having lunch with an European, a chicken sandwich probably sounds great. But... If you're having a lunch with an Indian like me, a chicken curry dish definitely resonates. Last week, we saw that Jesus can welcome and honor us in his community 
when we accept the gospel. We looked at it through the cultural lenses of shame and honor. This week, we will be looking at the gospel as Jesus is someone who can offer us peace that the world cannot offer by exercising his transformative power in a world filled with evil forces. We are looking at it through the power of fear and, fear and power culture. Just a, quick, just a quick recap. If you could see in the screens, the fear power culture is mainly embraced by people in global south, it's marked in the red, and tribal people groups around the world, mainly driven by their animistic social structure. Before we proceed, let us first put on the fear and power lenses. What is the worldview of people groups from this culture? What matters most to them? In fear power culture, it's not important to genuinely believe in certain truths or follow ethical standards. Rather, practices that placate the spiritual powers define acceptable human behavior. People fear doing something the wrong way before the spirit world. The basic assumption is that evil spirits inflict harm and cause fear. People need evil spirits' power to overcome fear. However, power is essentially a means for peace. And you contrast that with the Western worldview of scientific rationalism. Probably it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we'll come back to that. But as we carry on, there are typically three dimensions. Uh, yeah, um, there are typically three dimensions of reality in the fear power culture. The first is the seen world. So you can see there are people, houses, physical objects, and so on. And then they think of the unseen of this world. There is the angels, there's the evil spirits, and the ancestors, and so on. And then there's the unseen other world where you have God, heaven, and hell, and so on. The moral logic of fear power culture says, you just do something in the seen world, so you will be able to manipulate the unseen world into helping you. These dimensions of reality shapes the life of people of this culture, and anything that ranges from having a crop failure, illness, accidents, or even a child's gender are strongly aligned with these dimensions of reality. So my wife is from Malaysia. She grew up in a Buddhist household with some animistic influences uh, from her ancestors. In her culture, it is common to offer food sacrifice to the dead. What's the idea behind it? The idea is that one is to respect the dead. The other is, in order to appease the spirits of the departed, you had to keep them happy. And a way of doing this was to keep them well fed so that they will leave you alone and help you to live a peaceful life. While um, many in the Western world may not believe in supernatural evil forces, we all look for peace in this world. Uh, the way you look at it in the West is through government control, medical experts, retirement plans, insurance, and security systems. Nothing wrong with that. But people are people all over the world, and even in fear power culture, where they see the, the evil spirits operating quite evidently when, you, when they go to temples or in uh, worship places, they also find a way to find peace in this world. 
as humans, regardless of our cultures, we are desperate to hold on to something in our lives that will give us peace. Bible's teaching is that there is the the Bible's teaching is that if there is one thing if you want to hold on to, it should be Jesus to get that peace. Because Jesus offers a peace that the world cannot offer. The peace that not the peace that's not dependent on the circumstances, the peace that comes from the finished work of the cross, the unconditional peace, the eternal peace. Today we will look at this passage to see how God can provide that peace for us, firstly through his unconditional favor, secondly through his transformative power. So we'll look at it from the first point, unconditional favor of Christ. Um, so we read the passage from, from the start of Mark 5, but if you look a bit further behind, right from Mark chapter 4, verse 35 onwards, and when you go home, if you could read till the end of Mark chapter 5, you could see that there are different people who are on the verge of death. So the, uh, in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 onwards, it's the disciples who are on the verge of death. And then in this chapter, in this passage, we have the demon-possessed man. Mark mentions three times in our passage that he leaves amidst the tomb. That is where the evil spirits want to drag this man down. Then you have Jairus' daughter and the bleeding woman. So all of these groups of people, excluding the demon-possessed man, in one way or other could reach out to Jesus in their crisis. However, when it comes to the demon-possessed man, if you see in chapter 4, verse 35, Jesus was the one who took the initiative to save him. Jesus says, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So you see then chapter 4, verse 35. And to the Jews from the first century, the other side of the Sea of Galilee was the expression used to describe the Decapolis. The Jews thought that the Decapolis was a place to avoid. They are not God's covenantal people. They are the enemy's territory. And Jesus says, let us go. And the disciples are obedient in chapter 4. And they launched the boat, began to travel, and soon found themselves in a terrible storm. After their stormy night on the sea, the ship landed on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gerasenes, that is part of the Decapolis, that means ten cities. You know, in verse 2, it says, just as Jesus was getting out of the boat, a man came from the tombs and met him. In fact, the term that is translated from Greek, the word met in verse 2, is actually used in a military term. Uh, it is like a face-off, a standoff. It's not polite. It's like after coffee, you go talk to people and um, ask, how was your weekend? They say, yes, friend from London came over, we met, and so on. It's not like that. It's not like the man is coming to welcome Jesus into the Decapolis area. It's not like that. We also see that this passage directly points to the evil forces in action through this man. Jesus addressed the spirit directly. In verse 8, if you can see, Jesus addressed the spirit, not the man. He says, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. Jesus believed that the spirit was inside the man. It was not over. It was not under. It was not on him or it was not around him. It was inside this man. Jesus was ready to ready for a battle to rescue this man. 
this man has done nothing for Jesus to act favorably towards him. When we talk about favor, favor is a big theme in fear and power cultures. In those cultures, a lot of rituals and good works are done to placate and keep the evil spirits happy and receive their favor. Sometimes people from fear and, honor, fear and power culture easily fall for false prosperity gospel and we can easily get too critical of them. But if you put yourself in their shoes, this is what is embedded in their culture. Since young, pagan priests would teach you how to placate and find favor with evil spirits. So when so-called Christian preachers teach the false prosperity gospel and say, come, let's look at the Joseph story, and I can teach you how to find favor with God and find success, it will be appealing. Or to those who are going through hardships, and the preacher may say, come, let's look at David and Goliath's story, and I can teach you how to find favor with God and overcome the attack of the enemy. It will be pleasing. So whenever we meet people from a fear and power culture, the topic of favor is a great entry point for conversation. And we can also share how we can receive the unconditional favor from the one true God. Now let's look at how the Bible defines favor. Favor is a Hebrew word for grace, which in the Bible means electing grace. God's eternal sovereign choice to bestow grace on sinners and save them for himself apart from anything they have done to earn God's favor. So one key difference between the Bible definition of favor and the fear power culture definition of favor is whether it is conditional or not. What did this demon-possessed man do to earn the favor from Jesus to take this trip across the lake to rescue him? Nothing. What did you and I Christians have done to earn the favor from Jesus who willingly traveled to the cross for undeserving sinners like us. Nothing. Contrast that with the fear power culture definition of favor. Nothing comes for free. You will need to offer sacrifices, faithfully do what the spiritual leaders instruct you to do and perform many ancestral rites and rituals to obtain the much-desired peace in your life. The application is that we as Christians need to hold on to the true gospel and rejoice in what God has done for us through Christ Jesus. We should not stop there. We should take the gospel of truth and share it with our friends who are on a journey of finding the one true God. And in this case, um, especially with uh, the friends from the fear and culture, fear and power culture, we could talk about the favor of God. And so that's the first point we were looking at, the un unconditional favor of Christ. And the second one is the transformative power of Christ. If you continue reading the story, if you continue reading the story, one perfectly legit question is, is this truly a story of evil forces in action because of a man possessed by them? Or is this a story about human action because of certain illness that predates a modern diagnosis? Yes, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says that two equal and opposite errors into which human race can fall into when we talk about evil forces 
One is that we can completely disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe them and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. There is really a ditch on either side of the road, isn't it? The Bible talks about the evil spirits and Satan. However, if you read the Bible, you will see that it does not give undue attention. Most of the time, evil is in the background. Jesus also talks about the evil spirits when it is needed. Not every time he sees someone suffering. Here he addresses the evil spirits explicitly. However, later in the passage, Jesus also addresses the illness with regards to the bleeding woman. You might also be surprised that it's just not Christians and the Bible alone which is talking about evil spirits. You know, popular atheists, someone who is called like the top four atheist philosophers, Christopher Hitchens, when he reflected on 9-11 attack in New York on the Twin Towers, he started to wonder whether there is more than human element involved in it, that is, evils. And he said, I am more and more convinced that there is an evil force behind this. And also, a secular liberal, Andrew H. Del Banco, director of American Studies at Columbia University, has written a book called Death of Satan, talking about how the West, for the past three centuries, have tried to eradicate evil force. He, con he concluded that to reject a personal transcendent evil force is bad for the society. So his hypothesis from the book is, if you try to reject a personal transcendent evil force, you're doing something bad for the society. He came to that conclusion because he had relatives who were affected by Hitler and the Holocaust. Del Banco said, if there is no Satan or evil forces out there in the universe, then human beings alone are responsible for Holocaust evil. If that is true, then we are in a precarious situation. If we as humans are capable of Holocaust level of evil, then as human race, we are also capable of not stopping it. Del Banco says, it would rather be good for societies to accept the hypothesis that there is an evil force operating in this world and then see how you can find a solution to it. What is the solution? The book of Mark says it's Jesus. The book of Mark was written to reveal to us the identity of Jesus. At the very start, Mark says Jesus is the Son of God. Son of God is someone in the Bible who will inaugurate a new heaven and the new earth. The one who is in authority, who can free this world and, this, and humans from the forces of evil, sickness and death. Now let's look at what the Bible says. So we were at the verse 2, where we introduced to this man, isn't it? And then in verse 3, we see what the society was trying to do to him. They tried to bind his hands and feet. They tried so many times, and he, uh, the man easily broke all the chains. And, and eventually, the society has given up on him, and he's left to wander around. Then Jesus arrives. This man came and met him. Jesus starts talking to this man. Interestingly, the demon responded by addressing Jesus with this full title, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And then verse 9, Jesus asks, what's your name? 
the evil spirits answered legion, which means something in that culture. Um, so what is the significance of legion? We know from the Bible that Roman legion usually consists of 6,000 men or more. So by saying legion, the, the demon is indicating that they are many. They really weren't saying a name, but probably trying to intimidate Jesus with a large number, and that they are, they are saying, we are all together, and we are trying to fight and send you off from our territory. So if, if you can imagine a boxing uh, match, and you have bought the ticket, and you have been there, on the red corner, you, you see one man, and then the blue corner, you see 6,000 men with boxing gloves and so on. You start to think, this is so unfair. And then, the, on the right-hand side, there is Jesus, and he says, he doesn't even need to make one punch. He's just saying, hey, just come out of this man. Just one word, and then, and, and, and the whole, whole war looks completely um, nothing. It's, it's all, all the demons, the all the demons are on the floor. You can, you can clearly see that with one word, the thousands of evil spirits on the floor, they are prostrating before Jesus, begging for mercy. Uh, and then they also, in, if you see in verse 7, they are starting to even cry in a very loud voice. They are saying, leave me alone, Jesus. Son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. And it's interesting, isn't it? The, the evil spirits were tormenting the man and and this whole area for a long time. How are they finding the power of Jesus too much to handle? They don't want to even stand on their feet and fight. They have gone face down to the floor. They had powers to break away from any chains that the human society on, on a whole put on this man. However, when Jesus came to bind them, they thought begging for mercy would be the best and only strategy. Clearly, they were fearful of what Jesus can do. And then verse 10 to 13, they make the most unusual request. They beg Jesus over and over not to banish them from the area. Interesting reflection on that is that they have a sense that this territory belongs to them. And you can see that in Matthew 8 as well, where there is this, the same narrative and the evil spirits argued that Jesus had come to torment them ahead of time. The Bible talks about the judgment day, and Jesus will pronounce judgment and will lock Satan and the evil forces forever. But that day has not come, and that's the argument the evil forces are bringing in. And they want to be in that area, and Jesus, in a sense, says, okay, just get lost, you know, get, get, get away from this man. Yeah, go into the pigs. And, and once they enter the large herd of pigs, the pigs proceed to run over the cliff to the Sea of Galilee, and they all drowned in their thousands. I think this is an important implication for the people in Decapolis. They obviously have seen the demon's power, and they know that through the demon-possessed man, and now Jesus also has displayed the power in the area. He has shown that he can bind up Satan and evil forces. He can liberate a human and help people from not being in captive from satanic forces. The story doesn't just end there with God exercising its authority and power over the evil forces. 
it goes beyond that. If you continue reading the story, you will see how it was also transformative. In exchange for bondage and despair, Jesus offered uh, freedom and peace, not only to the demon-possessed man, but also to all those who submit to his authority. Okay, first we'll look at what happened to the demon-possessed man. So the pigs, the way when, it, when the demons possessed the pigs, you can see what happened to the pigs. They rushed down the slope and drowned in the lake. This is what was the destiny of the man. The, the, the demonic forces were dragging him to the tomb. But now the demon-possessed man was fully transformed. Mark described him as sitting down, dressed, and in his right mind. A total opposite to the previous description of tearing chains apart, crying out, and cutting himself with stones. He was no longer in bondage. He was free, not just physically, but also mentally and spiritually. Next, so the first subpoint was the freedom, but then next you also see that he was at peace in the presence of God. We saw in the previous verses that when he was demon-possessed, he was in enmity with God. He was on a military stand when he came to meet Jesus. He was on a standoff. But now, here he was at peace with God. There was no longer the fear or sense of having to fight back, but transformative peace in the presence of a creator was operating when Jesus showed his authority. Contrast this with the people of Decapolis. Now everyone in the community heard about the news, not just about the demon-possessed man, but also about the pigs. What happened? Did they view Jesus as a hero who brought peace to the community by chasing away the demons? No, their actions were the exact opposite. Like the evil spirits, they too start begging Jesus to live. That might not make a lot of sense, but if you put on the fear and power culture lenses, this makes perfect sense. It is important to understand that people from fear and power culture always talk about the need for spiritual power. For them, they don't see a lot of difference between God and the evil spirits. They just want to coexist with spiritual powers that are about them. They just want a good relationship with them so that the spiritual world will leave them to have a peace of mind and have what they want. All they fear is retribution from the spiritual beings that destroy worldly peace. You often see them with an amulet around their hands or neck or have some kind of ornaments displayed in their homes or offices. They are happy to have the spiritual beings around. They will be comfortable having spiritual beings and as long as they are left alone uh, and everything is going well in their life, they are comfortable with evil spirits being around. Perhaps this is the same for the people in Decapolis. Here we see Jesus disrupting something that the people were not used to. Yeah, they are happy that they are no more tormented by the demon-possessed man. But now they see that the 
the demon, the, the evil spirits have gone on to the pigs and pigs have died in large numbers. Perhaps they're worried about how all those disruptions may impact their life. In some sense, they're not having some kind of a peace of mind at the moment. Interestingly, when the people in Decapolis begged Jesus to leave, Jesus' strategy was like, okay, let me go. And he switched his strategy for missions. And instead of saying, hey guys, if you want help, I'm here, I can exercise demons, um, make your life better. He doesn't have any discussion with the people. He just walks out. But the strategy he used for mission is that he just sends a believer to them. Who did he send? It was the once demon-possessed man, a man who has experienced firsthand the transformative power of Christ. He became a living witness for Jesus. And if you go home and have a look at uh, the fruits of this man's ministry, two chapters later in Mark chapter 7, verse 31 and 32, Jesus again returns to this region of Decapolis, and people this time are welcome to come to Jesus. And the people brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand upon him. Decapolis, once a pagan territory, who begged Jesus to leave just like the demons, were no longer the same. They too have experienced the transformative power of Christ through the witness of one man. What a transformative story. This transformative power of Jesus still reigns today. So in case you're wondering, maybe I'm a Christian for a long time. I know this gospel for a long time. Why do I need to hear this again? I think it's because this is mostly the strategy of Jesus, is to send a man and a woman back to their homes, back to their workplace, back to their communities, to have us, to start having a conversation with people, being hospitable, just like Hannah said, just being interested in people, just being curious about their spiritual lives, and then talking about the goodness they have received, the mercy they have received from Jesus, and sharing it to others. This is how now God is going to show his unconditional favor and his transformative power to people in societies. Even in Manchester today, this is how it's going to happen. And you can be part of it. That is the good news. And I want to read this, which applies to us as well as in verse seven, uh, 19, Jesus says, uh, to, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go tell. This is our application from this, uh, for, for those who have been Christians. And I would also like to end uh, this sermon with the testimony of Jesus who brought transformation to the fear power culture of, uh, of a tribe in Indonesia through the witness of one family in the dark jungles of Indonesia on the banks of a long river lived the Sawai tribe, a tribe that thrived on violence and betrayal. Their religion was fear and their gods were the spirits of mother nature. 
Don Richardson and his family knew what Jesus has to offer and went to live among this people group as a missionary in the 1960s. His wife, a nurse, opened up a medical clinic while he translated the Bible into the local language. Two tribal villages were in constant battle at this time, and the Richardsons considered leaving the area for obvious safety reasons. But because they have become an integral part of the Savai community, the people were willing to have peace so they could keep them there. Motivated to stop the fighting, the chief of one of the tribes, the Don tribe, paid the price of peace. In a ceremony, the chief took his own infant son and placed him in the arms of his enemy tribe. The child would live with the enemy tribe for the rest of his life. As long as he lived, there was peace between the two tribes. Seeing an opportunity to share the gospel in a form that would resonate with the Savai tribe, Don presented the redemptive story of God as a loving father who was willing to give up his only son, Jesus, as the ultimate peace child who will bring peace and reconciliation to humankind. Don was able to teach the Savai people that the truth of the gospel with the truth of the gospel that resonated so much with their worldview, and they received this transformative truth with open hearts. Today, the gospel message among the Sawais are still expanding and life-transforming. When Don's sons visited the Sawai people more than 50 years later, they were greeted with thousands of believers and many more baptisms. That is the transformative power of Christ. That, that same transformative power of Christ is available for us as well. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Father, we thank you that you have worked in this world through Christ Jesus. Thank you that you have offered your only begotten Son for us, that he has become our peace offering. No more there is enmity between God and man. We can be reconciled to you. We can find peace that surpasses all understanding. We can, we can have peace that this world can never take away from us. We can have peace with God. We can be at peace with people because we have peace with you. Thank you for that peace that you offer us. Thank you for the mercy that you have shown us. Thank you for the goodness you have shown in our lives. And Father, we pray that we will trust in the transformative power that is available and we pray that you would also commission us to go to our homes, go to our places, to go to our uh, workplaces. And we pray that you would also minister to, through us, that we will be trusting in all the goodness that you have done and would be happy and willing to take it as a privilege to share the gospel with those around us in a way that they can resonate. We ask everything in Jesus' name. Amen.